If you want to lead, you go first. Today, Keith Ferrazzi shows us how and why to take the first step. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 488. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Today, a conversation with someone whose work I've been following for a long time and really has made the invitation for us to influence without authority. And that means that we need to go first as leaders. I'm so glad to welcome to the show today, Keith Ferrazzi. Keith is the founder and CEO of Ferrazzi Greenlight, a management consulting and team coaching company that works with many of the world's biggest corporations. A graduate of Harvard Business School, Keith rose to become the youngest CMO of a Fortune 500 company during his career at Deloitte and later became CMO of Starwood Hotels. He's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Forbes and Fortune, and the New York Times bestselling author of Who's Got Your Back and Never Eat Alone. He's the author of the new book, Leading Without Authority, How the New Power of Co-Elevation can break down silos, transform teams, and reinvent collaboration. Keith, so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Oh, Dave, thanks a lot. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think it's been, what, about 20 years since Never Eat Alone came out, and I read it, and it's a book that has stuck with me all these years. So thank you so much for all the work you've done for all of us on building relationships over the years. I'm so grateful for it. Well, thank you. You know, that book was a turning point in my life and a great blessing. And really has been the defining book for the last 50 years in the area of networking. But what we do is we find ourselves showing up today in the world, getting things done is now through networks. So the recognition that while originally this Never Alone was written on how do you create opportunity for yourself in your networks, now getting things done, work, leadership happens in networks. And so the new book is really Leading Without Authority, thinking about how do we work and achieve and transform and make progress happen in the network world we live in. Yeah, it's such a great evolution. And it and it's, I was thinking about creating opportunities and networks. I was thinking back just on your story and where you've come, and you've told the story of how influence and relationships and networks actually started when you were young as a golf caddy. What did you learn from that experience many years ago of going and serving as a caddy? Well, there's a number of things. I would say one of the things is that everything you want to achieve in your life is with and through people. And therefore, getting good at that and, and being strategic about it is so important. So, you know, I was a poor kid from an unemployed steelworkers family. Nobody had ever gone to college. Being a caddy opened my aperture, opened doors by getting to know the rich people at the country club. I opened up doors to college. I opened up doors to mentorship. I opened up doors to what it was like to sort of like, you know, what the rich dad, poor dad philosophy, right? You know, all of a sudden a human opens up opportunity. And then what I realized was it was, it was really through being of service that opened those doors. So the recognition that it was those people that would open up the doors and then being of service to them is what really makes the door open. And so I've lived with that, the belief that cultivating the most important relationships around goals that I have, and then serving those individuals richly, that that really becomes the, the future 
of you achieving great things in this world. And I've, I've done a pretty good job of it myself. Yeah, indeed. The title of one of the chapters in this new book is, Except That It's All On You. Yeah. You read the whole book, which I'm so appreciative that you did. Why was that chapter the chapter that you narrowed in on? Because I run into this situation fairly often, it seems like, where I'm talking to folks in our listening community or our clients or even in personal relationships, and someone will say some version of, we have this problem in the organization, and maybe even my boss has asked me for some insight. I'm not sure what to do. And I find it really fascinating that the leading thought isn't, I should get started and begin and to do something and to begin to move the needle or whatever. And so that one really, really spoke to me because I, I hear that a lot. As, as, as often as I find that it seems like we should be moving as leaders, we, at least the folks in my community, it seems like a lot of times there's a hesitation to take action. Yeah. And I love that. And I'll tell you what made me write that chapter. A few things. I coach executive teams. That's what I do for a living in my organization, coaches teams. And there is more finger pointing as to why we can't get things done. And as a result, I believe that the act of that finger pointing is a mindset shift that's necessary. I'll use a quick analogy about my foster son. Yeah. When my boy came into my home, he was 12 years of age, and he was so psychologically damaged by his 12 families he had been in prior, and particularly the the house of origin that abused him. He had no sense of trust. And he would say to me, you will never be my father. You will never be my father. And I made a commitment to be his father. And I made a commitment to myself, to my family, to that child, and to God that I would be his father. Now, I I didn't care about the brand. I didn't care what he calls me. But I made a commitment to be that boy's father. And could you have imagined me crossing my arms and saying to that young man who had been damaged as much as he had, when you behave like my son, I will be your father? Mm, Of course not. And we lose so much possibility, value creation, by crossing our arms in the workplace and saying, well, when they meet me halfway, why? What is meeting you halfway? Where is that in a contract? That if somebody is important for you to achieve your mission, if you're paid $100,000 for the job you're doing, and you think it's important that this person acts as if they're on your team, that you enlist this person, that this person joins your efforts to make something better, where is it ever said that you're off the hook if they're not meeting you halfway? Where is that ever written down? In fact, you're stealing from your shareholders or your boss. You don't deserve your salary. If you think you have this entitlement that somebody else has to behave a certain way for you to do your job. And when I coach teams, I make this very clear that if you have a passion for change and transformation and you're drawing down a salary for this company, you need to be the transformation agent here. And if you want to be mediocre and you want to behave in a way that waits for everybody else to meet you halfway and everything's painted nicely and posies are are popping up all over the place in your backyard, and that's how you can get work done, then you are not going to get work done in this environment, which is about agility and transformation and constant change and energy draw 
all the stuff that we're dealing with, all of this does not allow you to name the terms on which you can be productive. It is all on you. So that was the tone with which I wrote this chapter. Yeah, I can. I hear that when I read it. I appreciate you sharing the story about your son, not only here, but in the book. And it's interesting you bring up the analogy mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. parenting. We tend to be better parents than we are leaders. <laughs> I mean, yeah. even though there's leadership as part of both of those. Yeah, because when I, when I work with a team, I do something called recontracting. Recontracting is the agreement that a team makes along eight attributes of team performance. And it's interesting. We have bad contracts right now. As leaders, we have bad contracts with them. And as entrepreneurs, and just in your coaching, do you coach most entrepreneurs or people in, in, in bigger companies? Mostly folks in large organizations or, or smaller yeah. businesses. Yeah. So what I'm talking about in terms of it's all on you, I would assume knowing you that you already are recontracting with the people you coach, that it's all on them. Yeah. Because you sit there and if you're, if you've got a middle manager in a big company or in a company and you see them being unsuccessful and you can see that it is their relational incompetence that is creating their challenge, right? Then you recontract with them that they've got to go, you know, 80% of the way, not 50% of the way to get the job done with that person. We have a contract in our head in business that my team is who reports to me. And of course, like you said, as parents, if I'm a parent, I have a certain obligation of support, structure, celebration, discipline. I have a contract with my child and you, it's a pretty good one. People pretty much these days know what your contract should be. Not, not to say that we're all good. We're all good all the time. But in the workplace, there's just wrongheadedness on the contract as being a leader. The first wrongheadedness is rule one in the book, which is your team is not who reports to you. Your team is who you need to get your job done. And and so we talk about Sandy, where Sandy is the head of HR who is viewing the head of sales ops as her obstinate nemesis. And the redefinition of, you are a bad leader, Sandy, because this person critical for you getting your job done you have, you have dug in and created animosity with this person. Congratulations. You have failed your mission out of your own behavior. Mm-hmm. That's the recognition that how we set up the dynamics of the relationships with the people around us define our capacity to succeed or fail. And just this idea that the contract with somebody who doesn't report to us is different than the contract with somebody who does. Why? Why? You know, and what are all of the those horrific little erosive excuses. I call them the six deadly excuses. What are those horrific six little deadly excuses that we use to placate ourselves to fail our companies? I'm glad you mentioned the deadly excuses because that's something I really zeroed in a lot too. And I was looking through them and thinking through the lens of our audience and the folks I work with of which ones come up the most. And I've seen all of these. And the one that seems to come up the most for me and in my conversations is interestingly, maybe the first one is ignorance. Mm. And maybe that's just maybe I'm biased a bit by our audience. It seems to me that we have when folks recognize that they have some skin in the game or that they're missing something. There's a little bit more. I mean, the kind of person who listens to the show is the kind of person who's willing to do, I think, a bit more than than the average leader out there. But I do still see very often the first one, ignorance. And I'm wondering if 
you could share a bit about what does that excuse look like? How does that play out? So the way I was interpreting ignorance is this lack of awareness that the person that I need to be building a relationship with is it's upon me to build it. This, I don't need for them to meet me halfway. This Jane is a member of my team, not somebody I have to go get buy-in from. By the way, that's a, that's an, that's a really insipid little idea, which is buy-in. People use it all the time and they think it's a good thing. I think it's horrific. Buy-in means I have cooked an idea. And now I'm going over here to sell it to you. I want you to buy in to my idea. There is very little room for co-creation in buy-in. And buy-in is the limiter of innovation. That is, if you believe that inclusion and collaboration unleashes innovation, which by the way, this is one of those awakenings as well. I see too many leaders trying to just earnestly get their own job done. And they're not really focused on embracing others and inviting others in to co-creating a more powerful, innovative solution. So this is another one of those points that I would say is very important. You know, and that's an ignorance. This, this little dialogue you and I are having, one ignorance is that people that are important to my work are my team. And therefore, I have to invest in them emotionally. As we talked about earlier around networking, I've got to serve them. I serve people that I need to enlist. Enlistment is leadership. If you, if you have authority over someone, you could perhaps get compliance. But if you don't have authority over someone, you can't get compliance. Therefore, you need to enlist them. Therefore, service allows you to enlist them. Too many people think that logic should be enough. I want you to do what I want you to do to serve my initiative because it just makes sense. Well, who the heck are you? But the person you're wanting to do what you want them to do may have a boss that's telling them to do something different. And, and you're pissed off at them because they're not doing what's logical to you. Well, that's just a losing situation. You've just lost progress and you will stay stuck there. And you, you know, there have this continuum of collaboration, coexistence, resistance, resentment, and the idea that we live in coexistence too much. Right? But we need to be moving from coexistence to collaboration to ultimately what the book is defining as a new operating system for relationships in the workplace, which I call co-elevating. It really comes back to the title of the book of Leading Without Authority. It, it seems to me as I look back at my career and the career of our clients and listeners that 20 years ago, for better or worse, many organizations worked in a much more formal hierarchical style. And today, you might have 10 stakeholders that you're working to influence and none of them are your boss. And that seems to be much more the norm. And so it's interesting what you said about buy-in. I hadn't thought about that term that way. And the corollary to that, uh, or rather the, the, the movement beyond that probably, is what you call co-elevation, which is the co-creation, the collaboration you were talking about. When people start to make that shift from trying to get buy-in, to starting to think like someone who co-elevates. What's yeah. different? It's that you have to co-create in order to get the answers that meet the marketplace demands today. There's a new set of work rules to meet that new world 
of transformational pressure. If you believe that, then the next step is, do you believe that you can get there alone? Or do you believe you need to unleash more of the co-creative juices to get the solution to occur, right? So if you believe that's the next belief has to, it has to shift. Oh, I need to co-create this. I cannot just do it myself. Then you recognize the next step, which is not only do I need to co-create, but I need to bring people with me in the, beyond the co-creation. If it's just about one meeting, getting an infusion of ideas, that's fine. That might be easy. But what's tough is how do you keep this group coming with you while you move to execution? Ah, that's your team, right? It's not just a meeting, it's a team. And you have to own and invest in that team over a sustained period of time. How do you hold that team together for God's sakes? What does that mean as a leader to hold a loose knit group of people that don't report to you together to mutually achieve something? What's the promise to them? What's the promise to them? Now we start introducing the more emotional reasons that somebody signs up to be a part of your team. They're going to be a part of a group, a band of brothers and sisters taking a hill together, changing the future of something together. But the together is a part of the transformation, meaning, or the, the reason for transforming, because you move from being an isolated individual, bumping up against hard work and difficult people, to joining something and belonging to something, which is core to our human nature, that is going to lift us, elevate us move us forward together, move us up together, co-elevate. So your ability as a leader to invite people in to being a part of something, that they want to go on a journey together and elevate each other together. Now, when you make that commitment and it sounds good, now what are the rules? What are the rules of feedback? What are the rules of accountability? Because they shift from being hierarchical to being peer-to-peer. You have this incredible privilege to work with so many executive teams and to help take them on the journey to where they're trying to seek buy-in, but now are really in a place of co-elevation. When you see leaders make that shift and really start to think differently and act differently, what do their teams tend to notice they're doing that they weren't doing before? They are curating their time differently. They are not doing report outs they're doing collaborative problem solving. That's probably the biggest shift. You take a leader that used to do report outs and you now make them do collaborative problem solving, meaning that they are, they are bringing questions. So the head of sales is bringing a question to the table that they are inviting their peers input on. That is a big shift. Yeah. I didn't say that the leader is putting a question on the table, inviting co-creation. That by itself would be a big deal. I said, a member of the team is bringing a question to the table that they're looking for input from their peers on. That's huge. And what they're inviting is risk mitigation. They're inviting, tell me something I may be missing that might bite me in the butt. They're inviting, give me some ideas that might be innovative that I hadn't seen. They're inviting, I'm, who can help me? They're coming vulnerably to the table, but not in a sense of weakness, but they're coming vulnerably with excitement to tap into this rich, juicy well of advancement called their peers, their team. And that's what starts to happen. And you start to look at a team doing that. It's major, major. By the way, I'm loving this interview. You're in your simplest questions you're asking are so smart that 
you've extracted from me a summary of the book, I think better than any other interview I've, I've given. I'm doing another book and you've just given me so much great codification of what I'm talking about that I can't wait to send it to my, my co-writer. Keith, if you ever want to write a book and get it on the New York Times bestselling list and feature the podcast in chapter one, I will make time to talk to you about that. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words. Uh, yeah. the, the other phrase that really hit me in the middle, of the, the middle of the eyes as I was reading this chapter was the phrase, you always go first. And this comes back to what we were talking about ignorance earlier. The thing that I see a lot is there's a lot of the waiting for someone else to take the first step. And there's not even the recognition of, oh, I might do something first. And your invitation to us is, no, 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 no. You go first. You always go first. Yeah. Look, I mean, you and I are both in the business of behavior change. And behavior change occurs when people see a path. And then they are motivated to follow that path. And there's no better way for behavior to change than good role modeling. And my dad used to say to me when I was growing up, do as I say, not as I do. And, you know, he, part of it, he meant it. He's like, I know that I'm a frail human, but let me tell you what you need to do. Don't look at, don't look at what I do. I'm telling you how you need to be. And the hypocrisy of that, you know, was not lost even on a young kid. But we need, to, we need to lead through role modeling. And so here's a leader wanting to get the team to open up their peer-to-peer dialogues with each other. And yet the verbiage that she uses describing her peer in another group is adversarial. What does that say? Where's the role modeling? There? The role mm-hmm. modeling is you dig in and you coexist or you worse, you compete. So... It's, it's so important that we role model the behavior. You go first. Yeah. And yeah. in the same regard, you know, what I also think we're finding in the, the, the last few months is that the, the transformation of the humanity and the vulnerability of leadership has really shown up beautifully. I mean, Brene Brown, everybody sort of liked her talks, but are we really believing the vulnerability as a core leadership trait? We've seen it and we've seen how it works. We've seen that the I don't know is acceptable. And in fact, is maybe the only answer to an explanation. And it gives the leaders the time they need to really figure out the answer. The, the, the tears shed by leaders in public, the overwhelm and the recognition of overwhelm that breeds empathy, that gives leaders a break, meaning I'll cut my leader a break when I realize my leader is struggling as I am. And they may not be perfect, but they're doing the best, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, we've seen all of that. And so as a leader to lead with this humility, if you want to be, I mean, I'm hopeful that your leaders listen to this and they do a few things. Number one, they go get the book and they realize that they need to be leaders without authority and they want to learn how to be leaders without authority in this world. And then they step up in front of their team and they say to their team, hey, I want us to be this and I want to lead us to be there. Aside from telling you to to read the book yourself, I want us to go on a journey and I'm not sure I know how to lead us there. But let's do this together because this is really the right way to lead. Yeah. Thinking about what you said a moment ago about leading by example. And it is, it's interesting what you mentioned. I'm sure you've had this experience too, where you're talking to someone that you're in a business or professional relationship with and they're complaining about someone else. And 
that happens on a fairly regular basis where they complain about other people. And I always sort of have the thought when that happens, like, I wonder who they're complaining to me about when I'm not around <laughs> because yes. that clearly is their their default setting. And it really invites us to start to lead by example and to make sure we're creating that framework for it. And exactly. One of the other invitations you make is the invitation to give up being right. Tell me about that. So I, I learned this from AA. So I've, when I studied teams, I've studied interdependent groups that help each other transform. And I've studied work teams. I've studied Weight Watchers and what the women in Weight Watchers and men in Weight Watchers are doing for each other in their, in their coaching pods. I've studied YPO forums, which is a group of presidents committing to help elevate each other's success as leaders. And I've studied AA, a group of individuals who have been down literally in the gutter sometimes and turned each other around. And there's a wonderful phrase taught to me by a great recovery coach named Sean McFarland in Los Angeles, who says that the first question you've got to ask when you're twisted about something is, what's my part? And there's a step in AA when you've really screwed up. And most people, by the time they get into that program, have really screwed up many times. And there's a process called making amends. And they have to go back over all the examples of them screwing up. They start with the big ones and they work their way down in, through a lifetime, right? Sometimes there's a lifetime of making amends. But ultimately, we, have, we should all be making amends every day. But when we're twisted about someone, the first question we need to ask, even though we may be sitting there and saying, well, they did this to me. They did this to me. But then the question is, what's your part? Not just what's your part and why they did this to you, but what was your part and how you responded to what they did to you? When they did X to you, did you respond in, as your best self? Right? So there's always a part. There is even in your response to another person's violation of you, there's an opportunity to see your part. Now, why do you want to see your part? Because that is the first step to opening another human to seeing their part. And so when you're on a journey to transform an unproductive relationship to a productive relationship, you've got to start by seeing your part first, because when you approach somebody, you can't approach somebody that you want to change, particularly if there's animus or resentment and point the finger at them and tell them that they have to change. I think we all have been in those positions and we know the likelihood of change occurring. It's pretty slow, pretty low. On the other hand, if you open, so I created a word in our coaching over the last 20 years, I had to create a word or how do you open another person to you? How do you open another person to your change, to your desired change? The metric of a leader's capacity to open another person to them is porosity, porous. Mm. A glass is not that porous. Put water on it, slides right out. Porous is absorptive. Like a sponge is very porous. What is a leader, you want everybody to be a sponge to you. Porosity is opened through humility and vulnerability. Your ability to see your part and voice your part before you ask another person to see their part opens the porosity and therefore gives you a shot at them seeing their part. It's a beautiful set of coaching that's taught in AA around this process of amends. The more difficult news is it's not even in order to get them to see their part. I mean, that's the contrived little trick here, which is you show your part, they'll show theirs. Yeah. But you can't, you, it doesn't even work if you do that because they'll smell that. You literally have to just show your part and it will begin to open porosity. And if they don't, they don't. But 
you'll have made a mark, and but it'll it'll have softened the relationship so that you can begin to move in the right direction. It ties in what you wrote about resentment. You say resentment leaves us blind and powerless. It's been compared to drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. That's also an AA. <laughs> That's also an AA area. Yeah, 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 fascinating. Keith, just you know, I really appreciate the work you've done and the tough love you bring in this book to challenge people to move forward. So we're going to be linking up to the notes I've written on the book, your work, the website, everything in this week's weekly leadership guide for folks. So be watching for that uh, if you're listening. I one final question for you. You've been really just a force in the world of leadership and networking and helping people to get better at this for 20 years now. And you've had a ton of success. I'm curious, in the last year or two, what have you changed your mind on? If I reach into my soul and I give the answer, it's not going to be as obvious. I have always known that celebrating people is the way to elevate them. And yet, because I have I was born of scarcity. I was born of fear. I grew up not able to pay rent when I was at college. I went to Yale University and I lived in my car one summer to get one of those jobs that rich kids had. I come from some, you know, frightening economic conditions when I was young. And fear and scarcity bred for me perfectionism. And I'm pretty tough on myself. For me, it's always about what's next. Okay, great. Check. What's next? Number one New York Times bestseller. Okay, what's next? It doesn't matter. It's like, what's next? And I've always known celebration is how I need to lead with my team, but I am starting to absorb it. And part of it, interestingly enough, back to this, it starts with you. I got, I've gotten kinder to myself. I have been willing and, and appreciate and can absorb the compliment of what I've done in this world. And as a result, I'm more able to give it out to my team. And it's embarrassing that I haven't done that as much as I should have in my life, but I'm doing it now. And I really appreciate it. So I would say it's not changing my mind. It's getting my behaviors and my soul to catch up to my mind. Keith Ferrazzi is the author of Leading Without Authority, How the New Power of Co-Elevation Can Break Down Silos, Transform Teams, and Reinvent Collaboration. Keith, thanks so much for your wisdom. Dave, thanks a lot. If you're looking for some more motivation to take the first step, these related episodes may be helpful to you as well. One of them is episode 336, The Choice for Compassion with Edith Eager. Edith is a survivor of the Holocaust, 90 plus years old, has dedicated her life to really showing compassion to others. An amazing story, an incredible book. She was on episode 336 talking about her story. Boy, has she taken a lot of steps in her life to serve so many. Also recommended episode 452, How to Motivate Leaders with John Maxwell. We have a lot of conversations about motivation in general, and we've had many over the course of the years on this show. We haven't had as many on specifically how to motivate leaders. So in episode 452, John Maxwell talked us through how to really look at motivation through the lens of leadership, and many of us are leading other leaders He really walked us through how to do that effectively. And of course, he's such a wonderful leader in his own right. And finally, I'd recommend episode 455, how to create great relationships with Colleen Bordeaux. Colleen and I talked about the framework for creating great relationships. And of course, so much of that is found in Keith's work as well, including his previous book, Never Eat Alone. 
all of this is about great relationships, co-elevation, as he talked about today, and Colleen's message on episode 455 is a wonderful starting point for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to give you access to the entire library, searchable by topic. One of the topic areas that we have this episode tagged under is talent development. Had many episodes on that over the years, and so that's a great place to jump in for more on this topic and others. Uh, in addition, you'll be able to access my book notes from Keith's book and highlights and the things that I found to be most useful, and you'll get full access to the weekly leadership guide, to all of the member casts, to the free audio courses, my own personal library with everything that I found over the last several years that's been in all the weekly leadership guides, database there for you by topic. And then of course, the weekly leadership guide coming every Wednesday via email that will give you highlights of every episode, the relevant links, and of course, links to other resources out there that'll be useful to you. Next week on Monday, I'm glad to welcome Bonnie back to the show. It is our monthly question and answer episode. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, please go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That's the very best place to get a question to us. And we will consider it not only for next week, but for one of the future Q&A episodes, the first Monday of every month. Have a great week and see you back next Monday. Take care.